And thank you for listening to the history of World War II podcast, episode 217, Japan, Do or Die. Last time, the Japanese government, now under Prime Minister General Hideki Tojo, had decided that the U.S. would bow to its wishes and accept Japanese dominance of Southeast Asia, or there would be war. As for the United States, Roosevelt was equally determined that Japanese aggression would be checked, and China left alone, and once again open to American products. It was bad enough having Hitler run amok all over Europe. Asia could not be lost as well. As such, the Pacific Fleet was ordered to stay at Pearl Harbor, but its commander, Admiral James Richardson, was not pleased with the inadequate facilities. So, he complained when he should have been making the necessary adjustments. This resulted in Richardson being replaced by Admiral Husband E. Kimmel on February 1, 1941. One of the first things Kimmel did was to take Richardson's two task forces and make them into three, one commanded by William Pye, the next by William Halsey, and the third by Wilson Brown. That way, 60% of his ships would be patrolling at all times. But this was not optimal, and Kimmel knew it. It would have been better to have two of these forces patrolling at all times, as opposed to having one of them holding back, trying to conserve fuel. But Pearl did not have the oil for such things, as it had to be ferried from the American West Coast. Still, his move reduced somewhat the strain on the facilities at Oahu. Besides limited fuel, Pearl's other major shortcoming was its lack of surveillance aircraft. In January of 41, Naval Base Defense Air Force Commander Admiral Patrick Bellinger wrote to Chief Naval Officer Harold Stark when he took over that it was hard to tell that this was an advanced outpost watching out for an enemy attack, given the paucity of planes they had to patrol the surrounding skies. However, it was the new commander, Kimmel, that reacted to this. He ordered Bellinger to work with Hawaiian Air Force Commander General Frederick Martin to draw up a plan to coordinate Army and Navy air operations in case of an attack. The report, which came out in March of that year, was almost omniscient in its details. It stated that a Japanese attack would either come in the form of a submarine attack on nearby U.S. naval craft, or a direct attack on Oahu, its ships and facilities, or an attack on all the above. It went on to say that an air attack, if that's how it happened, would be launched from enemy carriers inside of 300 miles, and that a dawn air attack would probably come as a complete surprise, no matter how many patrol aircraft were aloft. However, that an evening attack would serve the enemy best, as they would be able to use the darkness to make their escape. But these are just words on paper. It always comes down to the people implementing set policies or dealing with local conditions. And Pearl was about to be dealt a severe disservice. Admiral Kimmel's Army counterpart, Major General Charles Heron, in charge of the Hawaiian Department, which protected Kimmel's vessels while in port, was replaced by Lieutenant General Walter Short in February. 
Heron had been at his post since 1937 and knew it intimately. So, upon leaving, he wrote a detailed report, for short, especially in regards to the Japanese threat. However, Short was not enthused about this assignment, nor was his socially active wife. Hence, Short did not even pretend to read Heron's report, much less ask him detailed questions. The only possibility of happiness for Short and his wife was, if the slogan of Honolulu was true, that it was a world of happiness in an ocean of peace. As for the current Japanese government, in late 1941, they saw the situation as black or white. Either they had to defend their gains in Asia from the Western powers, or lose it all and face humiliation. But how to take on, much less win, against the populous, industrialized United States with its vast resources? The answer, it seemed, was already being pondered by Admiral Isoruku Yamamoto as far back as mid-1940, when he turned to a lieutenant and said, I wonder if an aerial attack can't be made on Pearl Harbor. Yamamoto, born in 1884, the same year as Tojo, was from the samurai class and would make the Japanese Navy his life. Having been sent to the United States as a military attaché from 1919 to 1927, Yamamoto's military views, like practically everyone else's, was dominated by Alfred Thayer Mahon's The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, 1660 to 1783. That is, until Brigadier General William Mitchell tested his theories of air power by sinking several ships including a battleship taken from the Germans after World War I. Mitchell would later be court-martialed for challenging the Navy, but the results spoke for themselves. Now Yamamoto had a new god in his firmament. When the young Yamamoto returned to Tokyo in 1927, he tried to warn all those who would listen, and those who would not, that air power was the future not battleships, that their beloved dreadnoughts, Yamato and Musashi, were now as useful as samurai swords. For this, he would receive death threats and have to have his house under constant guard. Of course, the United States military, whose job it was to protect American territory, knew that Hawaii was a possible target of the Japanese. Back in early 1932, during its Great Joint Exercise Number 4, the United States Navy staged a test attack against Hawaii, the islands being defended by the Army and its Air Corps. But early in the morning on Sunday, February 7th, the Navy launched a surprise attack and won the mock engagement handily. Later, Admiral Arthur Radford would write, The general nature of the exercise was pretty well publicized and apparently the Japanese read all this publicity in great detail. Their attack on Pearl Harbor was almost a perfect duplicate. When the Japanese launched their attack at Shanghai in 1937, FDR was looking for a response that did not include warfare. The United States was in no shape to take on the Japanese, and that was the last thing the American people would have supported. 
Fortunately, the answer the President was seeking came from U.S. Asiatic Fleet Commander Admiral Harry Yarnell. He wrote a letter that eventually made its way to the White House, explaining of Japan's Achilles heel. Imports. If the Western powers stopped trading with Japan, their ability to continue attacking China would stop in its tracks. So, the following year, 1938, the U.S. State Department strongly stated that it opposed selling aviation equipment to countries that used such items to kill civilians. The year after, aviation gasoline was added to this moral embargo. Now commander of the combined fleet, Yamamoto, the Navy's highest-ranking seagoing officer, reacted to this by telling his superior that going against the West was foolhardy, as Japan received most of its oil and steel from the United States. Besides, this slippery slope would lead to war, and that, too, Japan could not win for some time. U.S. Ambassador to Japan Joseph Grew agreed with this assessment, but put his own twist on it, given his knowledge and experience of the Japanese. An embargo would not force Japan to back down. It would only force them to take what they weren't able to buy by taking the Dutch East Indies, which would still lead to war. But FDR went his own way in early 1940 and ordered Gru to tell Tokyo that Washington would be holding back petroleum exports as, with war spreading all over the globe, the United States needed the resources to protect itself. Secretary of State Hull wanted to go even further and spoke to the British and Australians about cutting off Japan completely from their oil. But FDR, who liked to play things fast and loose, wanted the ability to control what went to Japan. So, in July of 1940, Washington officially told Tokyo that it would be pulling out of the Treaty of Commerce and Navigation, which would allow it, in six months' time, to further deny Japan American imports. FDR was seeking to slip a noose around Japan's neck to give it a jerk every now and then. This, the president was hoping, would be enough. To all this, Yamamoto wrote to then-Prime Minister Kanoye, If you tell me that it is necessary that we fight, then in the first six months to a year of war against the United States and England, I will run wild, and I will show you an uninterrupted succession of victories. I must also tell you that should the war be prolonged for two or three years, I have no confidence in our ultimate victory. I hope at best you'll make every effort to avoid war with America. Hey everyone, Ray here. Are you hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and just praying for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. 
These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive, so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash World War. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash World War. One more time so it sticks. ZipRecruiter.com slash World War. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And yet, history teaches us that nothing happens in a vacuum. In September of 1940, with the Battle of Britain raging, Ambassador Grew wrote to his superior, Secretary Hull, that the militarists of Japan saw Europe's current crisis as a heaven-sent gift. Now was the time for them to strike at the Europeans' possessions in Asia. Still, there were others in Japan that believed Britain would never go down, using their island as an unsinkable base from which to attack the fascists. Yet others in Tokyo added that it may go badly for Japan if Britain lost. She would have to promise to stay out of Europe's affairs, overseen by Hitler, but would probably still be able to keep her colonies. This would indeed free up vast resources to focus on her Asian possessions. But to the Japanese, the United States was still the unreasonable threat on the horizon. Ambassador Grew also told Washington that if the United States goes down this road and forces Japan on a do-or-die mission, then their culture would demand that they do and die if necessary. And worse, if Tokyo tried some sort of balancing game with keeping what she had already taken, but also backing away from the Americans, some local commander would decide for himself to attack. It had happened so many times before. And Chief of Staff General George Marshall knew, as much as Gru did, probably better, that a war with Japan would be a terrible thing. As the United States had stuck its head in the sand since the end of the Great War, in every way but economically, the Japanese had spent much on war technology. They had a two-foot-long torpedo that was better than the Americans in every way. Their zero fighter planes could not be touched by anything America produced at the moment. It could get up to 330 miles an hour, take off from a carrier, and was equipped with two machine guns and two 20-millimeter cannons. As for those Americans in uniform, and there were only just under some 250,000, their commanders were all veterans of the 1898 Spanish-American War. Combat now looked nothing like then, certainly in its tactics. And each American soldier carried a Springfield rifle, first made in 1903. True, the United States was bigger more populous, and had factories and resources Japan could never dream of. 
But that nation had a 20-year head start in regards to not only developing weapons, but also blooding their men on the Asian mainland. Yes, in time, America's numbers would tell. But until then, how many American boys would die? How much money and material would be lost? It was not something to consider lightly, or at least the older soldiers and diplomats thought, but they weren't in charge. Later, in 1940, after British Admiral Andrew Cunningham launched his raid at the Italian port of Taranto with obsolete ferry swordfish biplane, torpedo, and dock bombers, Chief Naval Officer Stark contacted then-Sink-Pack Commander-in-Chief Pacific Command James Richardson and suggested setting up anti-torpedo nets. But Richardson, who did not like being told how to run his command, and few do, replied, Torpedo nets within the harbor are neither necessary nor practicable. Ships at present are not moored within torpedo range of the entrance. However, later Richardson commented, I had not considered that it was likely that the fleet would be attacked by a carrier raid. However, Kimmel, when he took command, and the same suggestion was made, replied, It would restrict boat traffic by narrowing the channel. Hence, nets were not put in place. As may be remembered, the Japanese studied Taranto in great detail, as did Stark, who could not let the brilliant assault by the British go. Therefore, he had Rear Admiral Walter Ansell complete a study of the possibility and figure out how to prevent it. The results of this report Stark shared with War Secretary Stimson, Kimmel, and a few others in January of 1941. The report said that as tension was mounting between the two countries, Japan would probably launch a sneak attack at Pearl Harbor. This attack could come in many forms. Air bombing attack, air torpedo plane attack, submarine attack, or a combination of several of these. Therefore, it was imperative to lay down countermeasures to all possibilities. This was followed up by detailed plans of the American War Department's War Plans Division. It called for possible ways to fight one or more countries at the same time, which meant the American Army and Navy would be needed on several fronts. The main question, as France had fallen and Britain looked all but beaten in late 1940, was which theater should be America's priority? At a minimum, the Western Hemisphere would have to be defended. But beyond this, should the United States limit itself to defense in the Pacific and go on the offensive in the Atlantic and Europe, or the other way around? Stark gave this to FDR in November of 1940 and recommended Plan D, or Plan Dog, which stated, Europe should be helped first. Chief of Staff General Marshall, as did Secretary Stimson and Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox, agreed that Plan D should be the priority. FDR, upon reading the report, concurred by saying, If Great Britain goes down, all of us in the Americas will be living at the point of a gun. 
as if FDR needed another blow. Soon after, Ambassador Grew wrote to the president at the end of 1940, where he laid all his cards on the table. In part, it read, After eight years of effort to build up something permanently constructive in American-Japanese relations, I find that diplomacy has been defeated by trends and forces utterly beyond its control. He ended the letter by saying that the Japanese character was such that if the United States sought measures short of war in which to bring peace back to Asia, that if the United States was not willing to go to war if such measures failed, then those measures would fail. As in, their culture took little note of bluffing. The Japanese had to be made to understand that everything they held dear as a country was being threatened by their current course of action. With the opening of 1941, rumors of war made their way around Tokyo, some of which got back to what American diplomats were in Japan. But on a more practical level, in response to this, Washington began ordering the families of consulate staff to leave the island nation. Japan responded, surprisingly, with a conciliatory gesture by replacing her ambassador to the United States with Admiral Kichisaburu Noruma, who had gotten to know FDR previously as a military attaché. But at first, Namura told Tokyo that he did not want this prestigious post. Why? Because, as he explained, it is impossible to rectify diplomatic relations between Japan and the United States by trying to juggle both Germany and the U.S. at the same time. I could not accomplish any purpose. But upon reflecting the offered mission, the former naval man took up the challenge as he saw his country on a collision course with the United States and so decided to do his bit to deflect the militarists of his country. Nomura arrived in Washington in early February of 41 and FDR went out of his way, probably more for public consumption, in meeting with the new ambassador by saying, there is plenty of room in the Pacific for everybody. It would not do this country any good, nor Japan any good, but both of them harm, to get into war. As for the room needed in the Pacific, the dominant reason, of course, was for business. And American business interests, especially those who made their money in Japan, also wanted to see peace maintained. As such, Louis Strauss, an American banker, gathered like-minded people and formed, with others like themselves from Japan, an informal group called the John Doe Associates. Those on the Japanese side had the ear of many powerful men in Tokyo, including current Prime Minister Prince Kanoye. The John Doe Associates were able to put their plan before FDR and Secretary Hull due to their connections and influence in January of 41. These men told America's leaders that they believed that if the U.S. were to restore trade between the countries, they could get Japan to agree to not only withdraw from China, but openly renounce Hitler. The two politicians 
did not believe this possible, but many a strange first steps have led to an understanding. So the JDA, as it was called, was told to write up a proposal. However, what came back in April was far from what had been promised. That the United States would agree to stop helping Chiang Kai-shek, that Japanese troops would remain in China until the nationalist government merged itself with that of Japan's Manchukuo governor, Puyi. This proposal was delivered to Secretary Hall. Yet Hull knew that FDR would be most displeased with this, and told the ambassador so. Not only was the statement not worth the paper it was written on, but Hull himself had a few mandatory points that boiled down to China being left alone and the U.S. having open access to all of Asia. But to make things worse, Nomura had delivered a modified version of the proposal to Tokyo within days of talking to Hull. As the Japanese ambassador had purposefully left out Hull's demands, and it only spoke of Japan getting what it wanted, Tokyo was enthused upon its arrival. This can be seen as either treachery on Nomura's part, or his sad attempt to start a dialogue between the two governments. However, Foreign Minister Matsuoka was able to sniff out the truth. He knew there was no way Washington had agreed to this, and he scoffed at his comrades who thought that a deal was just a signature away. As he told a colleague, I guarantee you, once we start negotiating, all sorts of problems are bound to emerge. With the China incident still going on, we cannot negotiate with Washington properly. And if the negotiations fail, that we will have given the military an excuse to start a war. A war, in fact, whose opening blows were already being planned out by Admiral Yamamoto. When Admiral Nomura was asked to become the new ambassador to the United States, Yamamoto, aboard the battleship Nagato, wrote a letter to the Navy minister entitled, A Conflict with the United States and Great Britain is Inevitable. Having traveled throughout America, Yamamoto knew that Japan could never beat the United States in a traditional conflict. Hence, his plan... Operation Z, or Operation Hawaii, was conceived in desperation. Basically, what was needed was a naval version of the German Blitzkrieg, an initial attack that would be so devastating that the morale of the U.S. Navy and her people will sink to an extent that it cannot be recovered. And if the United States wanted to gather the bulk of their Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor, then that is where the attack had to take place. And lastly, his letter also asked for the blessing of leading the attack. I sincerely desire to be appointed commander-in-chief of the air fleet to attack Pearl Harbor, so that I may personally command that attack force and thereby devote myself exclusively to my last duty to our country. And Yamamoto would be granted his wish. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, um, 
unfortunately, I didn't have the time to do the drawing for the World War II Monopoly game, which I bought uh, at the World War II Museum in New Orleans. Um, so you've got one more week. So I'll do it on the next episode. Just send me an email to wwiipodcast at gmail.com. Put Monopoly in the subject line and your name will be added to the list. Um so again, so sorry for that, but, but you've got another week to try for those of you who haven't. So, so good luck to everybody, and I will see you next week with the drawing. Take care, everyone. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.